Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Hey, pirates, mermaids, land lovers, and ocean lovers. I have a riddle for you today. What do the oceans and weather have in common? At first glance, it may not appear to be much. What does a thunderstorm, rain falling from big black clouds in the sky, have to do with the vast blue sea? As it turns out, everything. My guest today is Chelsea Carlson, meteorologist for Commander's Weather. Her job is to help boats navigate through different weather systems in order to arrive to their destination in an optimal time and safely. So today we are learning about the liquid ocean that is our atmosphere and how studying it can lead to some pretty amazing experiences on the actual ocean. Chelsea illustrates how weather and the oceans are inextricably linked, how hurricanes form and what special ingredients you need to make that pie, and also shares about her time training Team USA for the upcoming 2020 Olympics. Let's dive in. Chelsea, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. Hey, Kara. Thanks for having me today. So you're the first meteorologist we've had on the show, and I'm really excited about it. Um, As I was kind of preparing for the show, I read that meteorology is essentially the study of the liquid ocean that's all around us, which is really the air that's constantly trying to find equilibrium, and it will never happen or cannot be achieved due to solar radiation and the tilt of the Earth. And I thought that the liquid ocean bit was particularly poetic. Would you be able to give us a kind of an elementary lesson in meteorology? Yeah, definitely. And I love this um, analogy of the atmosphere being a liquid ocean um, because it's true. I mean, they're both fluids. So we have the fluid ocean um, and the atmosphere is also a fluid. Um, And when we're in college and get, if you're getting your meteorology degree, you end up studying a lot of uh, fluid dynamics just as you, you would um, as an oceanographer or a marine scientist. So there's actually a lot in common. Um, it's just that the, the atmosphere is of a different density. So t- it's less dense and ocean and water is just much more dense fluid. So um, a, a basic, you know, just understanding of me- meteorology, I always like to say, what causes the weather is essentially just the differential heating from the sun. So in different parts of the earth, you get obviously more solar radiation and other parts you get less, just like how it's cold in the poles and it's warm by the equator. So that essentially is the baseline that drives all the weather. And it's similar for the ocean as well. That's what drives um, all of the major ocean currents um, that are you know, moving around the globe as well, that's also created by differential heating. So basically, we all know life wouldn't exist without the sun, but we also wouldn't have any weather systems if it weren't for different areas of the globe getting more or less uh, warmth. So temperature drives all the winds, the wind patterns, 
Um, and yeah, and then the you add in a whole bunch of other cool little features that make it all complicated since the globe is spinning. <laughs> so that adds all kinds of swirling um, actions like the Coriolis force and all kinds of other cool like physical things um, because the earth is spinning. But at, at its most basic, um, it's due to just the temperature differences um, that cause the winds and patterns, so. Okay, so you have, say you have like a hot, hot air mass meeting a cold air mass, kind of what usually happens um, and like what, what, what would happen with the air masses? Can they kind of slide by each other like tectonic, tectonic plates, correct? And then what would we see as a result? Just like one or two examples of kind of what would happen. Yeah, so it, most people know are really familiar with cold fronts, um, and mm -hmm. that's exactly what you're talking about. So you get a cold air mass coming down from, say, the Arctic or Canada, and you know it pushes down into the United States, and it meets a warm air mass, um, and that creates a front or a cold front. And essentially, the cold air is much more dense. Um, than the warm air, because warm air rises. So I like to think of it, um, you know, it's funny because I actually think of it, and when I picture it in my mind, I think of it like a fluid, like I would a uh, pouring water. And sometimes meteorologists even describe cold air coming down off the mountains as cold air is pouring down because it's more dense and it just sinks right down to the surface. So what happens in a cold front is you get the cold air um, pushing down and it sinks down to the surface and then the cold or the warm air ahead of it rises. When you get that meeting of the two different temperatures plus the rising, that's when you get storms and a lot of times thunderstorms. So that's why a lot on the edge of a cold front, you can have showers, thunderstorms, that sort of thing, right where those two air masses are meeting. Um, so the, the cold front is kind of the more classic example. It's a little easier to understand, but warm fronts work the same way. Um, a warm front is warm air coming up closer to cold air and starting to overtake it. Um, but again, because the heat rises, that warm air is rising up above the cold air. So it tends to be less stormy, but you still get some rain and you still get some, um, sometimes thunderstorms with, with a warm front. Um, so same, same exact system, just slightly, um, slightly different, depends which air mass is kind of moving faster. Um, so that's kind of the, you know, basics of maybe cold front and, and warm front. Okay. So, so speed wins if, if the cold front, if the cold front's moving slower, it, it won't overpower the dense, the denser air won't drop out. So speed wins. It's kind of what I'm understanding. Yeah, exactly. It all depends on which system, which air mass is moving faster and where it's going to. So like here this time of year um, in the United States, we're getting cold air masses starting to drop down from Canada um, and the Arctic, and those tend to be faster moving. And so that's bringing us a lot of cold fronts. You know, it's fall here. Mm -hmm. um, so what what causes, I mean, what really, <laughs> if you can do it without getting like too nitty gritty, what causes seasons? Like why are we, is it just the rotation of the earth starting to tilt differently or the sun the sun just hitting the earth differently and that that's what enables all this cold air to come down from the arctic yeah it's a combination of those two things so first is just the tilt of the earth um so now we just had the fall um, equinox uh, about a week or so a week or two ago um and so now we're 
the earth is officially tilted more away from the sun, you know, we're getting ready to go into winter. So we're getting less sunlight, less heating. Um, and then what tends to happen is that drives the cold air masses to start coming down more from Canada. Um, once we get into that kind of a weather pattern, because the Southern hemisphere is warming up, they're going into summer and we're going into winter. So the air masses are getting colder and they're starting to progress basically a little bit faster now. So that's the, the variation between the seasons. Yeah, it all, it all starts with the Earth's tilt. Um, and then the seasons will change based on other various factors of, um, you know, whether it tends to be a stormy year or a not-so-stormy year, because you can have both. Okay. So for listeners that may be wondering why we're talking about um, the weather on a marine biology podcast. <laughs> Could you please explain how the ocean and the weather are like intricately connected? Yeah, absolutely. So not only are they both fluids, um, but they don't exist separately from each other. They're constantly interacting. Um, one of the really cool um, features of, I guess, meteorology and marine science is that there's this there's this area um, between the ocean and the air that they meet and they'll mix. So um, one of the things that I've looked at studying when I was going to college and potentially grad school was this area called the marine boundary layer. So it's basically that base layer of air over the ocean where all different kinds of um, physical processes are happening. There's exchange of heat, there's exchange of energy, there's exchange of moisture. So it's a constant um, mixing between whatever's happening at the surface of the ocean and what's actually coming up into the atmosphere. Um, and then on top of that, you know, we wouldn't have, if it weren't for the oceans, we wouldn't have that moisture content to actually bring rain. So if you go back to like elementary, just the water cycle, you know, we need the oceans to be able to bring that moisture content up into the air um, to get into the clouds and create condensation that creates the clouds. Um, and then from there, it can rain and storm and all of that. So this full cycle that's, you know, warm and moist air rising up out of the oceans and then condensing in the sky as clouds. Um, and then, of course, it rains back down and runs back into the oceans again. So that's your, your full water cycle. So they're ex extremely connected um, just on a large scale. But then even on just the smaller scales, and this focus is actually a lot on what I do, is looking at the small scales of how um, coastal areas or even the open ocean um, affects the winds. So mm -hmm. if you have really warm water and you get a very cold air mass coming over that warm water, um, it's basically going to create that temperature difference, which what that does is that speeds up the winds a lot. So we have a lot of um, clients, I do forecasting for, for sailboats and um, you know large ocean going vessels that are going all over the world and we do routing for them based on the weather. Um, and a lot of times, we have to explain this to them, you know, if you're going into an area that's very warm water and then suddenly there's cold air rushing down, that wind speed is probably going to be almost twice as strong as what you would expect it to be um, if the water was, a, you know, warmer temperature or a cooler temperature. So mm -hmm. depending on what's going on at the surface of the ocean, it definitely affects 
what the weather is doing even above the surface. And that was one of my favorite things to realize and to learn about. And so that's that's kind of where I geek out is that that marine boundary layer area where they interact. Yeah, absolutely. So you went to school for meteorology and I and we kind of chatted a little bit before the podcast. The school you went you went to University of Miami, but the actual school is the Rosenthal School of Marine and Atmospheric Science. So it kind of drives home the point that they are completely interconnected. Um, so even so, even people that live completely in the center of the continent are affected by the ocean weather patterns, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, those air masses that come down um, and across the country, they come from the Pacific. And a lot of the things that happen in the Pacific affect us on the east coast of the U.S. or inland. So all around the U.S., you're getting affected by air masses that have traveled across the oceans. So um, they're absolutely still very important. Mm, that makes sense. So I wrote a post um, on my Patreon page how hurricanes are marine biology, too. So the biology part might have been just a little bit of a stretch. Um, but certainly they, they're marine science, as we kind of were talking about what are some key factors that you look at to determine hurricane formation and movement patterns? I know one of them is the ocean water needs to be 80 degrees Fahrenheit or 26 and a half degrees Celsius, I think the conversion is, um, for a depth of 50 meters. What else are you kind of looking for besides incredibly warm ocean water? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up hurricanes too. That's kind of the main thing that people think about when they think of meteorology. But um, one of the, my favorite things to learn or that I learned in college and, and beyond was that hurricanes essentially are heat engines. Um, so if you're into engineering or any kind of like even just diesel or, you know, you study any kind of engine, like physical engine, um, a hurricane is actually just a naturally occurring heat engine. So um, you, you absolutely have to have that hot um, moist air coming in in order for it to even form. So yeah, usually around 80 degrees Fahrenheit, that would be prime conditions for um, a hurricane. Sometimes it can actually be a little bit less than that. Like you can get um, a tropical storm or things forming if it's a little bit, um, even a little bit cooler than that, if all of the other ingredients are there as well. So I always like to think of weather and especially the forecasting as it's like a recipe. So you have to have multiple ingredients in order to, to bake a cake um, and you have to have multiple ingredients to get a hurricane or really any weather system. So um, warm water temperature is one of them. Um, another one, uh, it has to do with the way the winds are um, changing with height. So if you think about the surface um, of the earth, and then you think about, say, one to two or three miles up. Um, if the wind speeds up there are significantly stronger, like I'm sure everyone has looked up in the sky and seen clouds just racing by, like those clouds are just booking it. <laughs> so that's an indication that the wind speeds up high are really strong. So we call that wind shear. Mm -hmm. And so you hear, probably hear a lot about this during hurricane season as well is what is the wind shear doing? They're saying, oh, there's low wind shear or high wind shear. So what hurricanes like is low wind shear. So they don't like to have the, their, the very top of them cut off by winds that are really strong. 
So when you have low wind shear, um, the storms are able to grow really tall up into the atmosphere, very, very high, way above the marine boundary layer and, um, you know, thousands of feet. We usually look for cloud tops. So the very, very top parts of those clouds that are maybe 30,000 feet high, so as high as you would be in an airplane. Um, that would be a good, really good ingredient for a healthy hurricane. Um, and so hurricanes we always think of as people say, oh, good ingredients or bad ingredients. Um, so in the meteorology world, we think of good as meaning helpful to the storm. Right. <laughs> maybe, not, maybe not necessarily helpful to everybody that's in its path. So <laughs> I get I get that one a lot. They're like, oh, wait, it's good? I'm like, well, it's good for the hurricane. It's maybe not good for the people in the path. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the ingredients that help the hurricane grow nice and strong are the warm water temperatures. They need low wind shear so that they can have really um, big cloud tops and convection. Uh, that's the big thunderstorms in there. And then on top of that, there's a few other like more intricate things, but the steering currents um, then are the, the wind patterns that would drive the hurricane to go certain ways. Um, and the steering currents have to be in such a way that um, it's conducive for that storm to kind of keep rotating around. Um, so yeah, those are, those are kind of the big ones, but I found it really interesting about the heating of the ocean being a primary drive um, for the hurricanes. And it's the same thing with typhoons in the Pacific as well. Mm -hmm. um, some of the p areas in the Pacific now are so warm that there's, there's areas that there is no on or off of hurricane season. Um, hurricane season is actually just lasting it's all year so parts really? of Indonesia and like the South China Sea um, at, at any time of year they can have a big typhoon um, just spin up and and affect them so it's pretty interesting and it has a lot to do with the fact that the Pacific is just much larger and um, other things too but yeah, it's it's pretty um, eye-opening to to realize that you know typhoons can affect them really any time, and I think that that's you know in my personal experience, it seems like that's been increasing a little bit more with time. Um, I'm not sure that we necessarily had quite as many typhoons affecting them, um, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago. Mm, that'd be interesting to see the data on that. Yeah. Um. So when you kind of switch over to typhoons. So hurricanes and typhoons are both considered tropical cyclones and they're the same thing, just called different things depending on where you are in the world. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. So over here in the Atlantic Basin, we call it hurricanes and actually in the Eastern Pacific as well over near like Baja and Mexico, um, they're also called um, hurricanes. And then if you switch over to the Western Pacific, so any of the Asian countries and um, those are all, it's the exact same thing, just a different name called a typhoon. Yep. Okay. Thank you. So growing up, I, <laughs> growing up in Florida, right, you hear that a butterfly flapping its wings in Africa can cause just the tiniest puff of air and then it will travel across the ocean and create a hurricane. How true is that? <laughs> yeah, it's so funny because it's not that far away from the truth. Um, so if things that ha are happening really far away, I'm always amazed, and especially with Africa too, it seems like it's so far away, um, but the way that the upper air moves, it tends to bring those storms that 
develop over the Sahara Desert and Africa, and it just it fuels them and brings them right towards us. Um, and one thing that I found is really interesting is I was living in Houston for a while, working for a company there, and they we'd have these Saharan dust events where actually all this dust would get lifted up from the Sahara Desert in Africa, and it'd get lifted up so high into the atmosphere that it would carry all the way over to Texas and for whatever reason the the weather was the way that it was at that particular day um, there was air sinking and brought all that dust right down I remember walking outside of work one day and my car was covered in dust I was like is this the is this the Saharan dust that they're talking about and sure enough it was so um, it definitely is a little bit strange to think about at first but um, it's all interconnected and then yes. there's all these different, um, you know, we call them, uh, we call them modes, um, of the atmosphere essentially. So the, if you're talking about climate on a longer time frame, we look at these different modes and one of them that a lot of people know about already is El Nino. Mm -hmm. So there's El Nino and La Nina, but there's all these other ones as well. There's the North Atlantic oscillation, there's the Pacific decadal oscillation, and we call them climate oscillations because they tend to go back and forth. But um, that is also a bit of a driver of what what's happening in one area of the world is affecting somewhere completely different. So the Pacific oscillation, if it's in a certain phase, it can mean something completely different for our weather over on the east coast of the U.S. Um, and it's happening over in Japan. <laughs> so it's it's one of those things that you the more I learn about it, the more I realize that everything really is interconnected. And um, like you said, sometimes maybe it's just a butterfly or a, a couple thunderstorms over in Africa that suddenly become Hurricane Dorian <laughs> right. a couple of weeks later. It's crazy. Yeah, I, I think that's something that I learn more and more is that everything truly, truly is interconnected. It's a big world, but it's really it's so it's not that big. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you just touched on El Nino and La Nina, and I think they're probably the two bigger weather patterns that we hear the most about besides, you know, the really dramatic hurricanes. Could you kind of explain what both of those are for listeners? Yeah. So El Nino, um, it's actually called we call it Enzo, E N S O for El Nino Southern Oscillation. And the two different phases of it are either El Nino or La Nina, and then there's neutral, which is in the middle. So El Nino is basically when the waters in the Atlantic part, uh, not the Atlantic, the tropical part of the Pacific. So basically close to the equator in the Pacific Ocean. Um, we monitor the temperatures out there. There's a, a series of buoys um, that... Uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, they have these buoys out there and they monitor what the temperatures are in the ocean. And so when those temperatures are above a certain um, number for a certain period of time, um, that triggers what they call El Nino. And when the, the Pacific waters tend to be warmer over there, um, it means usually for the Atlantic Basin, um, that the, the hurricane season tends to be a little bit quieter um, mm -hmm. over the history of time. doesn't mean that there's not going to be any or, you know, there might be one and it might affect your town. So it's hard to say like, oh, you're not going to get any hurricanes. But on average, just the number tends to go down. 
Um, and th that's because it's warmer in the Pacific, and so they get more hurricanes over there. So it often tends to be one or the other type thing. If the Pacific is really active, then it means oftentimes the Atlantic is not quite as active. And then mm -hmm. La Nina is essentially the vice versa of that. The Pacific is just a little bit colder than it normally would be. And so you're not getting as many hurricanes happening over in the Pacific side. And that means it's usually busier um, on the Atlantic side with hurricanes. So a lot of times in La Nina years, we see just an, a much higher number of storms. So like 2005 with Hurricane Katrina, that was in a, a La Nina year. Mm. Um, and some of those years surrounding, um, you know, 2004, 2005, 2006, um, when things we were having a lot of strong hurricanes, that was a, um, a strong La Nina. So and then when it's neutral, it's kind of in the middle. So this year actually turned out to be pretty close to neutral. Um, mm. It's it's just starting to maybe go a little bit into a very weak El Nino. Um, but it, for all intents and purposes, it was not strong one way or the other. It was very close to neutral. And so far, we've had a pretty average, maybe even slightly below average. Season isn't over yet, but we're very close <laughs> to average right now. Okay. That's interesting. And I think you bring up a good point, like just because it's a quiet a quiet season doesn't mean that a hurricane isn't going to come and it might come to affect you like it, Dorian did to us, even though this is technically a below average season. <laughs> yeah, and we always say that, you know, it always takes one to make it a really bad hurricane season for you. You know, um, the oh. people of the Bahamas, it was a horrible hurricane season for them. Yes. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So what got you into meteorology? What, why did you know you want to do this when you went to school? Yeah, this is always a fun kind of question and story because I think almost all meteorologists that I know, they all go, it goes like way back to their childhood and they're like, yeah, I always knew I wanted to be a weather person. And um, there's usually like some storm event that they went through that sort of was like, oh, that was awesome. Like I went through a hurricane and now I want to be a meteorologist. So it's really funny because I don't really have <laughs> anything that exciting, <laughs> but okay. it was more just like a slow progression for me. So the biggest thing that I always go back to um, is I grew up in Florida on the water and got into sailing when I was a kid. So mm -hmm. I started off in summer camp and every single afternoon um, in Florida, and you know this, mm -hmm. there are these thunderstorms that develop and it's in this, like, I just noticed one day it was the same place the same time every day there were these thunderstorms and I thought it was the coolest thing um we, we have to come off the water from the sailboat so that wasn't cool but I got to sit on the shoreline you know putting my my sailboat stuff away and watch the thunderstorms develop and watch the lightning and I just I was always really curious as a kid so I just wanted to know why I was like what causes that why is it at the same time every day why is it in the coming from the same place, going the same direction every day? Um, and I didn't know the answer. So I just started looking it up one day. And I remember my senior year in high school um, realizing, OK, you know, time to think about college and what I want to study. And I knew I wanted to do something environmental and I definitely was going to do science, but just wasn't really sure. And I remember just Googling. I was like, Okay, science of weather. Okay, meteorology. 
And then I remember Googling the schools in Florida that I could go to. And I remember the first one that came up was University of Miami. And I thought, well, that's on the water. Like, I could go sailing and I could study meteorology. Okay. <laughs> and so it was just decided at that day. It was like one day I sat down and I it was a decision. It was like, okay, I'm studying meteorology. That's what's happening. <laughs> Which, awesome. was, which was kind of cool. Um, but I, yeah, it was deeply connected to my passion for just wanting to be on the water and um, watching the storms and everything. And so I later found out that the storms came in that way because of the sea breeze. So the sea breeze would collide um, with the air that was, you know, inland a little bit. And right on the coastline, there are thunderstorms every single afternoon. And it's because mm -hmm. every afternoon we get a little sea breeze coming in. So, yeah. All that warm air rising from inland, and then you get that cooler sea breeze, and it's just like you're talking about. Yeah, they, exactly. They met and then created a storm. <laughs> yeah, and sea breezes are one of my favorite things now because that's something I get to talk about a lot, and I love teaching people about it because um, I didn't know about it when I was growing up, and I just found it so interesting. But yeah, warm air rising over the water, or uh, warm air rising over the land. Um, and then the water is just a teensy bit cooler than the land is, um, and you get a circulation that develops. And with that circulation, you get rising air and big, cool thunderstorms, lots of lightning in Florida. That's awesome. So, what? So, there's actually a degree for meteorology at the University of Miami. Did you? You had your undergrad degree. Did you pursue a graduate degree? I didn't. So. When I got to the end of senior year, um, it sort of came to a couple of different options. Um, and so to back up a little bit, my junior yeah. year, I did a program um, that I definitely want to talk about because it was instrumental in deciding kind of where my career went from there. I knew I wanted to do meteorology, but I hadn't really figured out what I was going to do with that yet. And so most of my friends that were in my program with me, they were going to be storm chasers or, you know, they wanted to chase tornadoes or do um, hurricane research or something. And I liked all that stuff, but I wasn't really convinced that's what I for sure was going to like focus on. So I got this incredible opportunity my junior year to do a program as a study abroad um, type of a type of a program, even though it wasn't fully abroad, but it's called um, Sea Semester. And mm. so SEA stands for Sea Education Association. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I am. One of my good friends I actually had on the show, um, episode two, she studies manta rays now, but she was a an instructor for a semester. Cool. Um, yeah. So I am I am familiar. But so for the listeners, semester is an opportunity to go study marine biology, marine science, um, aboard, living aboard a sailboat. And you travel around, I think they have boats, one's in the Caribbean, and one actually travels around the world, which is pretty cool. So what should you do? Yeah, and um, I think there's two different programs, too. Um, so there's one that's like semester at sea, which is something completely different. And then right. ours is sea semester. So I just want to make sure there's that distinction. Oh, you know what? Maybe I'm talking about another one. <laughs> no, the one you're talking about sounds correct, though, I think, because I was on a sailboat. So, okay. and yeah, this is from Sea Education Association. So it's, I'm pretty sure it's the same one. Yes. But I did the one that was during the summer. So it was the summer between my junior year. It's really hard to study abroad with a, for the meteorology program just because there's not a lot of options to go abroad and 
like get credits that would transfer. Mm. So um, the, my best option was to do it during the summer, which worked out really well. So I did the program that was based in the Pacific. So how it works is it was a one month um, session on land, which is in Woods Hole up on Cape Cod. And there we took some classes and organized what our research project was going to be. And we learned a little bit about sailing and my favorite part, learning about navigation. And we learned um, celestial navigation. So navigating using the stars. Oh, how cool is that? <laughs> yeah, that was like, that was definitely my favorite part. Um, but the, the research part was really fun, too, because I'm I'm just such a re- researcher at heart. So we like kind of formed um, our research plan, did all our studies and after that month then we flew out to Honolulu in Hawaii and that's where the the ship was so it's a 200 uh, or no sorry 100 foot sailboat and if you think about it like one of those old it's a tall ship so it has two masts it looks like a like a pirate ship except it's not not super old but it's wooden and Mm -hmm. um, very very you know, cool for a sailor to be going on this big hundred foot tall ship. So we got on in Honolulu and we sailed to San Francisco. And so we, it was basically halfway across the Pacific. It took us 29 days, I believe. So it was almost a month out at sea. And it took us so long because we were sailing most of the time, which isn't always the fastest way. And, but we were also stopping every four hours that whole time stopping every four hours to do our science projects. So we would drop in, um, you know, new stone toe nets and collect critters and collect all these various samples and mostly yeah. focusing on the ocean health and ocean plastics. Yeah. Um, so really quick, a new, a new stone net um, is just a really big kind of cone shaped net, usually with like a um, bottle at the end and you drag it drag it behind the boat for a set period of time and then you pull it up and you kind of see what has collected in the bottle at the end so you were finding lots of plastic yeah that was a lot of us had different research projects because there was like 20 or 30 students on board um and almost everyone's project related to something with ocean plastics and or and you know sea life by the biology and all of these various things relating to the plastic um, but so every four hours we would we would do those um, net toes. We'd pull up and then we do these plastic counts. So with that bottle that we pulled out, we'd actually count the number of plastic pieces that we found and record it. And it changed very dramatically as we sailed across the Pacific. And so our route for that particular um, voyage, partly because of the weather, but also because we wanted to go there, was to go right across the quote-unquote Pacific garbage patch. <laughs> so, I really love that you brought this up and you put quotes around it. Um, yes. Because, and I kind of want, and I, I, I want to touch on this really quickly. So the Pacific garbage patch has been this like media um, a dramatization. I mean, it's it's a very real problem, but it's not, when people think of this Texas-sized garbage patch, you literally think of like, I mean, it comes to my mind still, you literally think of, floating debris that you could walk on the size of Texas in the middle of the ocean. And what it really is, is a lot of, I mean, there's still a lot of big, big debris out there. Um, but there, most of it is microplastics and it's just like a confetti of plastic in the ocean and it's huge and it's a big problem. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what we found. Um, you know, we, we knew when we got into it because we started finding a lot more debris. And this was also the year, this was 2012. So it was a, the year after the really, really big earthquake and tsunami in Japan. So we mm -hmm. knew there was going to be a lot of um, debris because of the tsunami that had carried a bunch of stuff out to sea. So, and we saw all kinds of big debris, like refrigerators and small boats and, you know, a lot, a lot of fishing gear and all of that sort of th thing. So there was that, but it was very, like you said, you look out at the ocean and you don't see anything. You're like, it doesn't look like a garbage patch to me. It looks pretty, <laughs> looks pretty nice. And then you look closer at the water, you just dip your net in and, and kind of scoop it out and you see all of these thousands. I mean, I remember when we were in the heart of the patch and we were pulling out and some of our counts, it got to be in the thousands and it was just one little net toe, you know? Mm. Um, so it was pretty disheartening um, definitely to see that. And one of the students was studying how it affected the biology of the critters that we were finding. So like little jellies or fish, um, barnacles. We pulled off some, we, we were able to get one of the buoys that was floating and pull off some of the um, gooseneck barnacles, which are very cool looking tubular like um, barnacles that are alive. Mm -hmm. And we actually found that those barnacles were ingesting the plastic. We found it like inside of it. Mm. Um, so it was interesting. But. It is interesting. So, and kind of the, the plastic issues is a, is a big one. And the, it, they're finding plastic in everything. It's, it's showing up in fish, it's showing up in seabirds, and it's not just ingesting the plastic. It, it stays in their system. So they will actually starve to death because they don't feel hungry, or the plastic actually has chemicals that can leach into the systems and kill animals. So plastic is like a multi-pronged mm -hmm. uh, issue. So, okay. So you are on your semester and you're finding all these, you're doing your toes. So that was like a really formidable experience for you then as a, as a uh, fledgling meteorologist. Yes. So coming back to the whole reason why I um, brought it up was it, especially the navigation aspect of just navigating our way across this ocean and looking at how the weather impacted our route. Um, and I worked really closely with my captain at the time to look at the weather and figure out what our route was going to be. Because um, it becomes difficult to just sail directly there. You actually have to do a little bit of a zigzag in order to get to um, Hawaii. Because So if you're not a sailor, just a little background, you can't sail directly into the wind. So you have to actually sail a little bit off of the wind um, in order to make progress if you want to get to the direction that the wind is coming from. So we had to kind of strategically plan our route based on you know the direction of the wind which I just found super fascinating. And that, I think it was after that trip, I just thought I want to do marine weather and marine forecasting. Um, if I can relate it at all to sailing and ships, that's what I want to do. Um, so I was pretty, pretty convinced after that. And then it was just a matter of figuring out like how I was going to do that. So mm -hmm. I didn't know if I was going to go into research or go into an operational forecasting um, job. But what I eventually landed on, um, I had some really great advice um, from someone that said, find, find someone that's doing the job that you want and then 
talk to them and ask them questions and ask them how they got to where they are and how can you how you could get there so i took that advice which was the best thing i ever did um i found a person and a company that was doing exactly what i wanted to do which is marine weather routing for sailboats um and contacted the owner and actually emailed and said can we talk on the phone like this is something i'm really interested in i'm just graduating college what you know what would you recommend so i asked him and we had a long conversation um and i just wanted to know you know should i go to grad school should i get my master's degree in this or should i try to get experience in the workforce um and so per his you know suggestion he thought well if you really want to do this then i would just get experience um you know try to get as much forecasting experience as you can if it's related to marine weather that's even better um so i was really lucky i got a job right out of college working for he uh, the the guy that i talked to he said i'd love to hire you right now but i can't <laughs> so i have to i can't hire you at the moment but you know let's stay in touch which was great so I had yeah. to find a different job and I was lucky I found another job working for um, a more corporate office um, in Houston. So that's when I moved to Houston for a few years and was working on marine forecasting for oil platforms. So okay. all of the all the big oil platforms out in the Gulf of Mexico and off of Brazil and elsewhere. So I wasn't totally excited about what I was doing and kind of who I was doing it for. but. At the same time, I was like, you know, I'm keeping people safe that are out there and I'm getting to forecast for marine areas all over the world. So this is this is good experience. And then eventually coming back to kind of where I am now, I got my job at Commander's Weather. Um, that's who I spoke with, my boss, Ken Campbell, um, when I was debating about grad school or not. He eventually contacted me and said, OK, we can we can hire you. So we'd really like to do that. So a couple of years went by, but I eventually um, got hired by them. And so now I like to say I'm doing my dream job, which is awesome. <laughs> How many people can say that? So really grateful. That's incredible. That's a really good lesson and story um that you know if you're not sure if you see somebody that's doing what you want to do ask them how they got there and i love that that it came back and you actually got hired by the exact company that you're like no that's exactly what i want to do so that's fantastic <laughs> yeah and i never would have thought that it would have happened that way i just kind of thought well i'll just ask him and see how it goes and you know it a lot there's a lot to be said for just staying in touch and just you know building a network but not even out of for the sake of networking, just to build, um, you know, friendships even mm -hmm. um, with people that are in your field. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I recommend it's uh, all, most of the opportunities that I've been lucky enough to have. It's been from just who you know. So keeping in touch with people goes a long way. It really does. I have found that to be true throughout most of my life. So that's a great point and great advice. So. So I didn't realize that private meteorology was even really a thing. I mean, I just go on my like weather underground app and I'm like, that's what the weather is going to be. Great. So what like what is the advantage of why? Why is there a private meteorology company? So right now you do forecasting for private sailboats and before you did it for oil rigs. Like what is the advantage of hiring you to do this versus just consulting my app? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so 
the main um, thing that I think most people think of when they think of weather, the number one question I get is like, oh, what channel are you on? <laughs> so people <laughs> think of broadcasting, which in a way is a, pri- a form of private uh, privatized weather. So there's broadcasting, um, which serves a certain purpose for a certain um, demographic, you know, in a local area. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the government, which serves um, all different kinds of areas, but for also a specific purpose. So the National Weather Service... Um, is really great. I love looking at their forecast. It's probably the forecast that I trust more out of any app or anything. Like I always just kind of come back to consult them because I know the level of expertise that goes into some of those forecasts. And um, their their main goal is to give an area, like let's say you live in Florida, it's to give South Florida um, an accurate forecast of what's going to happen locally with a lot of knowledge about that specific area. So they're really good at their little zone, their forecast zone. Um, And their main goal is really um, mitigating hazards. So they're looking out for tornadoes, you know, hurricanes, things that could cause damage, flooding, um, rip rip currents, all of that stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. So they're they're more focused on warning people about potential hazards, which is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, The private sector apart from those kind of exists to fill all the other little niches that need to be filled that um, the National Weather Service doesn't really focus heavily on. So if you are a sailor or even just a boater and you're going out and you're looking at either National Weather Service or, you know, one of your apps, it's going to give you a good idea of, um, you know, whether it's going to rain, what the temperature might be, and it might give you an okay wind forecast. Um, But let's say you're taking your boat from South Florida and you want to go on a long trip, you know, up to, let's say, Georgia or South Carolina, up the coast. Um, The app isn't going to give you a real good sense of how that weather is going to change as you're moving along. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, there's also just the inherent um, issues with the model data and I know a lot of people probably know about these computer models that help forecast the weather um I'll keep this real short spaghetti models what's that spaghetti models it's like my jam when there's a hurricane coming (laughs) yeah everybody knows about the spaghetti models exactly so there's several different computer models that help us predict the weather um and so yeah to kind of keep a long story short essentially those models it's just a computer prediction and they're often wrong. <laughs> so it, it really helps to have an interpretation of what that model means. And as you can see with the spaghetti plots, they go sometimes in all different directions and they're sometimes doing all these different things. And so it's one of those cases where sometimes too much information is almost a bad thing because mm-hmm. people are just confused. They're like, this model says this and this model says this. And I don't know what's going to happen and can you give me some help? And so my job is basically to help those people understand um, the uncertainties, what could happen and what's most likely to happen um, for whatever it is that they're doing. So we work with a lot of yachts that are just either going around the world um, or even sailboat um, racers. So we, we actually specialize also in people that are racing sailboats in small little areas. So that happens a lot in South Florida, but all over the world as well. And we'll get down into those little nitty gritty details that you would never find on your app or on the Weather Channel or National Weather Service. They're not going to be able to tell you 
that the sea breeze is going to come in at noontime and the wind is going to shift a little bit to the right and that um, the clouds are going to come in, which is going to make the wind speed go down a little bit. And so all these little tiny local effects um, are what we really, that's kind of our bread and butter, what we help people to understand um, how these little things affect the, we the weather that's where they are or where they're going. Um, so it's, it's a little bit different than the, the purpose of some of the other weather apps. Yeah, that makes sense. So I actually sail and I, and I've raced in the past as well. And local knowledge is very real. You always want to know like, Oh, have you sailed here before? Kind of what's the, what, what's the wind going to do? What are some of the patterns? So you provide that with more data and science behind it. So that's fantastic. Yeah, and some experience too. I've gotten to go to some, you know, different spots around the world um, to do that, which is really fun. And that's just also my passion aside from work, you know, so I get to kind of combine the two. And so, yeah. so you know, if you're a sailor, um, mm -hmm. it's, it's helpful to know what's, what's going to happen beyond just kind of um, a generic weather forecast. Absolutely. So I, you brought up what something I really wanted to talk to you about. Um, you team you trained team usa in japan for the 2020 olympics to kind of help get them ready how was that for you you got to marry your love of sailing and meteorology it's pretty epic yeah i feel super lucky very fortunate um my company uh commanders weather they've done in the past many olympic um campaigns many olympic programs for sometimes various countries. So I think they've worked with the um, Brazilian team in Rio and, you know, going back many years, they've worked um, on Olympic um, weather programs. But this was my first chance. Um, I've worked here three years now, so this is my first Olympics to kind of um, jump in with it. So I got a really cool opportunity when um, the U.S. sailing team was looking for um, a meteorologist to help with their um, program for coming up for Tokyo. So last year I got to fly out there for I think it was two or three weeks and just get some basically reconnaissance of what the little area is like and the sailing venue is a little tiny island about an hour south of Tokyo. It's called Enoshima um, which is a really cool spot it's nice to kind of be away from the hustle and bustle of Tokyo mm. and um, it's kind of like the little retreat escape area um, for more rich people in Tokyo to kind of get away but it's a great sailing venue and um, yeah so I got to help the team just kind of figure out what the normal weather pattern is like there um, what normally happens you know when does the sea breeze come in and how does the land affect the breeze because there's hills and all these little intricacies um, at that specific spot and trying to figure out not only what's happening, but then how to predict it better <laughs> is mm -hmm. quite a challenge, especially in an area like Japan where we don't quite have the, they, like they don't quite have the same infrastructure as far as um, all these different weather stations measuring what the wind's doing. Like in the United States, we have all kinds of little weather stations everywhere set up that record data that's very helpful to us. And there's not quite that much of it over in other countries, especially um, Japan. So it's it's a fun project, and um, I like working with the sailors. And most of it's based around education. So a lot of it is teaching them, okay, this is how the sea breeze works when this is happening. Or, you know, when clouds are coming in, 
um, you know, it's going to make the wind speed decrease because it's sort of suppressing the wind. Um, and little things like that, just to kind of, they can start to use that information then when they're racing around these little courses, you know, they're, they're smaller than a mile. So it's a very small little area that they're kind of taking their sailboat around. Um, and for the non-sailing racers, they usually um, spend anywhere from two to three hours out there a day, you know, doing these races around these buoys. Um, and so a lot can change throughout the day while they're out there. And so getting them educated on how the weather works um, is super beneficial, especially at that high of a level, because all of the sailors are so good, you know, they're Olympic. So they're very, they're at the very, very top of their game. And there's very little differences between them that allow for, you know, one person to be better than the other. So they use these strategic advantages of the weather and the currents um, and use that to their advantage to try to, you know, win the race. So, Well, hopefully they can pull out the gold for Team USA and, and you can feel like you had a part in that. That'd be cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would be really awesome. It's It's been fun. I was there for almost a month this year and um, I'll be back next year for the games. Um, so, yeah, I'm very excited. Will you be there for the entire time of the games to kind of like fine tune what's happening versus what your reconnaissance recovered? Yeah, so I, I actually I think I'll probably be there for a little bit before the games and then throughout um, working with the team and, and, mo and working with the coaches more so. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's incredible. Very cool. So I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, we've been seeing a lot in the news lately about climate change um, with the UN Climate Action Summit that just happened and Fridays for Future, which is um, striking movement that millions of people have joined lately. Um, not lately. It's really, it's only been a year. I didn't realize it's only been a year that Greta Thunberg started these Fridays for Future movement. Um, so one very specific number that's talked about in climate change and kind of reducing our impact to keep the earth from warming is another one and a half degrees. Could you explain why that's so important? Yeah. So there's a certain threshold that um, once you have enough CO2 in the air and the greenhouse effect is, is in motion to a certain extent, um, it becomes, I guess they're, you know, they're saying it's, somewhat irreversible, although I think that there are ways that we can kind of backtrack it, but um, there are certain things that get set into motion that then are very difficult to um, undo, and some of them may not be able to be undone. So, like, for example, when we hit this threshold of temperature, um, you know, certain ice caps may never refreeze again. They may melt and it may be very difficult for certain areas that were once ice to fully come back to being all ice again. Um, and once sea level rise kind of starts, it's not really like it goes back down again. So, you know, once that gets going, um, it becomes very difficult to kind of reverse it. Um, and so, yeah, there's all different kinds of effects um, that can happen once you have enough CO2 in the air. And see, it becomes difficult because CO2 is, and, and any of the greenhouse gases, methane, um, you know, any of them are, they become very difficult to remove from the atmosphere. So you can do it. Um, you can plant a lot more trees. You can, we could come up with maybe some CO2 
removal devices um, is one of the things that they've talked about doing. But mm -hmm. it requires such a large scale and, um, yeah, it requires a really large commitment that everyone would have to make. So mm -hmm. it becomes, yeah, a, an important um, temperature threshold. And mm -hmm. I think it was a couple of years ago we passed, uh, we surpassed, like, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that it would never go back to its, like, pre 1900 levels and I think it I'm trying to remember the number I don't have it offhand but I think it was like 500 was, per million yeah I think it was 400 but you might be right with 500 um yeah 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 we were told to stay below 350 and it didn't happen so now we're above 400 which was or four or 500 which was the threshold um and really what I mean and I kind of had this conversation with my husband like the earth goes in cycles and like, yes, we're, we are going through a warming cycle, but, and the problem isn't that the earth is warming. It's just the rate at which it's happening. And the amount of CO2 that we are putting in the atmosphere accelerates this rate of change. Um, and it's real. I mean, I, I'm hoping, I hope that most of my listeners understand that it's real, but to kind of drive home the point, there's a lot of municipalities, especially in coastal areas, definitely in Florida that actually have coastal task force resiliency meetings and teams that are just solely dedicated to sea level rise and like how it will affect their local hometown and like what they can do about it. Thank you for explaining, you know, the one and a half degrees and ice caps melting and all of that craziness yeah. that the world is in. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and relating to back to even um, marine science and ocean science again, is that you know, there's a lot of talk about the air temperature and, you know, hitting that, that threshold. Um, but what I think maybe your listeners are more familiar with it, but I don't know if the general population necessarily is, is um, the ocean warming. And so mm -hmm. there's different thresholds that the ocean has for certain populations. Um, and to, to be honest, I think that actually scares me more than mm -hmm. maybe some of the, the warming as far as the air temperature goes, because I think we're going to see much faster repercussions from ocean warming than we are from the air warming. So sea level rise may happen. It may take some time, but I think it's generally slow. Um, but once the oceans become warm enough, like we were seeing um, coral bleaching and ocean acidification, which is changing the migration patterns of different species um, and affecting our, our fishing, you know, the, how we're getting our food from the ocean. So I think that's going to take a toll potentially even sooner than some of the things that they're talking about that, you know, may, maybe make the headline news. Mm -hmm. And even from a meteorological standpoint, the ocean warming, I mean, we talked about what, what, what's part of the recipe for making a hurricane is very warm ocean water. So if we constantly have that ingredient, then it makes it that much easier for all the other ingredients to kind of come together and create all these super powerful storms. I don't, have you looked at data for, it feels like the storms that we've had have been the most powerful, like consistently ever. Like we had Hurricane Andrew in the early nineties that, and I feel like we're going off the rails here and we'll come back in a minute, but we had, um, we had Hurricane Andrew in the nineties that was really powerful storm. Um, and then I feel like there's only been like one or two, I mean, the 0405 hurricanes, but then it's been crickets, and then the past three years, we've just had these amazing, like, Category 5 storms annihilating places. Is is there data on that? Like, is this abnormal? 
Yeah, it's so funny because it goes, you know, the part of the problem with answering that question is that because it's such a relatively short period of time, we don't have a whole lot of data actually for mm-hmm. weather, um, historical weather going back very far, which makes it a double pronged um, question in that it does seem from the data that we have, it does look like the systems are getting more frequent and that they're stronger um, in the last 30, let's say 30 to 40 years. Um, The other part of the problem with that is that basically 30 years ago um, is just when we had the advent of satellites. So Mm -hmm. it really wasn't until the 1970s that we had weather satellites that could look and see these hurricanes out there. So prior to that, I think part of the issue is that there's just a lack of knowing, a lack of information and lack of data. So we could have had some of these, the the last five years, we've seen a lot of these big, like the one that's out there now, Lorenzo, it was, you know, it was a category four for a while and a very, very powerful, very large hurricane um, out in the middle of the Atlantic, but it didn't affect land. Mm -hmm. So no one was too concerned about it. You know, there's probably a lot of people didn't even know about it. and we definitely would not have known it was there if we didn't have satellites to see it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's one of those things that um, there's been some studies, you know, people have kind of looked into it and they're like, I actually think that it's been like this for a while, but we just didn't know. <laughs> so it's it's really difficult to say because our technology has come so far. Um, and also in that time frame, you know, we continue to build on our coastlines and, you know, more people are living on the coastlines than ever before. So when we look at the amount of damage that it does, it's like, oh, this was so much more damaging than the hurricanes of the 1930s. And we also just built a lot more stuff on the coastline for it to wreck. Right, it's just more there to damage. That makes sense. We also have more sensors that are able to detect, you know, the wind speeds. So it's like, now we know the wind speeds are really strong. You know, we we can detect 200 mile an hour winds, um, whereas, you know, 1930s and 40s, it was just sort of a guess. Um, so anyways, it's a it's an interesting question. And I would love to see how it develops and see what kind of research comes out on it. I, I'm not totally sold on either category. Although I do, I do know for a fact that with a warming ocean, um, there's no way you can avoid more and stronger hurricanes. So that it wouldn't surprise me that that is is definitely happening too. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. What's the favorite part? What's your favorite part about your job? Hmm. That's a tough question. (laughs) (laughs) I think, okay, so I really like doing a forecast and then watching and getting to see how it actually plays out um, in real time. And so I guess part of that is I like seeing why I'm wrong and when I'm wrong. Um, So it goes back to me just being so curious and kind of just wanting to know why for everything. But so when when I do a forecast for the weather, let's say for a race in Miami or something, um, I'll actually sit there and kind of watch what the little weather buoys are doing and watch what the winds are doing um, and watch the satellite and see how the clouds are coming in um, and just get a feel for how it actually developed. Because most of the time it's always a little bit different than how you think it's going to go. That's just part Mm -hmm. of Mother Nature, which is so fun, is Mm -hmm. figuring out like, oh, that went totally different than how I thought it was going to go. 
um, you know, sometimes I'll think that there's going to be a sea breeze happening and then there's no sea breeze <laughs> because the clouds came in or something strange, you know, kind of happened. So I love getting to learn and adapt and um, especially talking and interacting with people on that, that same note. So hearing their feedback and saying, you know, I saw this happening as far as the winds were shifting more left and you thought it was going to kind of go more right. And so we'll talk about it and we'll discuss it. And, um, you know, we get to kind of educate people on, on why these things happen. So I think watching it play out and how it actually happens in real life. Because a lot of times when you're a meteorologist or any scientist, really, you're sitting behind a computer screen, you know, you're looking at all kinds of cool data, but you're inside and you're looking at a screen. Um, mm. I love getting out there and seeing it in real life, in real time, um, and actually watching the weather play out and whether it happens the way I think or not. <laughs> how often do you have a percentage of how often you're, you've nailed it versus kind of how maybe you didn't get it totally right? Oh, no, I have no idea. I can tell you I get it. I mean, just like anyone, you're, you're never going to be right 100% of the time. So right. there, there's for sure a lot of times that, that it's it's not correct. But um, our clients are pretty happy. They come back and they like us. And I think part of the, the thing, too, is not just whether you're right or wrong. And this goes for all weather forecasting. And I like urge people to kind of give your local weather person a break, maybe, <laughs> um, because it really goes down to conveying uncertainty. So mm-hmm. your weather forecast is never going to be 100% right. It's never going to be 100% wrong. But if you can convey to people what the uncertainty is and what the different potentials are for that to change, that goes a long way. So most of the time I'm probably wrong. But what I do try to do is explain to people, okay, hey, if I'm going to be wrong, I'm going to be wrong because of this. And this is what's going to happen instead. So it's almost like predicting that it's going to change and telling people ahead of time, okay, if I'm wrong, the wind speeds will be higher than I thought. Or if I'm wrong, the wind speeds might be lower than I thought. So you're kind of giving them a little bit of a, an uncertainty range as to what to expect. And I think that goes a long way too. Yeah. I feel like it's not totally being wrong. It's just more like presenting different hypotheses of what could happen, right? Like this is what I think most likely, but if the wind does this or this, then this is the other scenario that's going to happen. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I was actually looking at the course curriculum or the syllabus for being a meteorologist at the University of Miami, and you have to take a lot of thermodynamics. And one of the things that kind of stick in my head about thermodynamics or physics really is just that entropy always wins. Yes. (laughs) So entropy is the amount of disorder in a system. And my husband is an engineer and he actually had a shirt in college that said this, entropy always wins. And and (laughs) Whether you call it entropy or the mother nature variable, it's true. Um, and it does always win. It's always I a factor. I love that. <laughs> I'm going to use that from now on. Entropy always wins. I like that. <laughs> Perfect. I have two favorite questions that I definitely want to ask you, and then we'll kind of wrap up. What is one of your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be like, the best day you've ever had out in the field um, or like the worst day you've ever had. And you could use experience from your professional career or even while you're at school um, or if there's like a really formidable, like forming um, childhood experience that that would work in this situation too. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So 
I guess I can probably maybe answer best and worst, maybe almost in the same story. <laughs> okay, fun so, how that works out. So yeah, so I guess a little background is I do some offshore distance racing um, sailing as well, which tends to take place in bigger boats. So mm-hmm. um, I was doing some racing last year in Long Island Sound. So we'd start, um, you know, kind of near New York City, and then the race takes you all the way down east out towards the Atlantic Ocean, you go out towards Martha's Vineyard, um, and you go around a little buoy or a little tower kind of out near Martha's Vineyard. It's called um, Buzzards Bay Tower, and you go around, and then you come back and head all the way back into Long Island Sound, and it usually takes a two, it's like a two-day trip. Um, So for this race, um, the weather on the first day was particularly not great (laughs) so it was it was upwind which means you're beating against the wind and there was a big sea state um and it was kind of cloudy and rainy and cold and I was navigating for this race so it was kind of my job to like keep keep the boat going in the right direction and telling the skipper where to go um so there was some stress involved and you know the weather was just pretty relentless and I ended up getting a little bit seasick um And so that whole day and into that evening, actually, you know, you're kind of just thinking like, why, why do I do this? Like, why am I out here? Like, I could be at home in my bed (laughs) with a warm... Cut up a good book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just one of those things that you're you're very outside your comfort zone. Um, And there's, there's moments like that. And I think this is kind of maybe a metaphor for life too. You know, there's, there's those moments or those hours you're like, oh, this is just tough right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we kept going, you know, we were doing well and going fast. And as we kept going, you know, we got to the turning point where it was time to turn around. I think it was like early the next morning. Um, and so we came around the corner and literally the sun came out and it turned beautiful. And at that point, it was basically a downwind ride, which means you're going with the wind. It becomes very easy to sail. It's very comfortable because the seas are kind of going along with you rather than against you. Um, and so we got to the Block Island Wind Farm, which is this beautiful wind, um, you know, wind farm that's just off Block Island. There's like six or seven um, of these just huge, majestic um, wind turbines. And so we ended up like the, the fastest route and, you know, we were racing. So the fastest route took us basically right through the wind farm. <laughs> so I remember we started going downwind. It was beautiful. The temperature got really nice and we're sailing through this wind farm and I'm on this yacht and, I'm, you know, all of a sudden everything just kind of turned around. I was like, wow, this is why I do this. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes the weather is challenging and, you know, you're uncomfortable or outside your comfort zone. But I've always found that when you push yourself kind of towards the edges of your comfort zone or outside your comfort zone, generally what's on the other side tends to be really worth it. Um, And so that's kind of one of those experiences that I think of that it was ended up being really worth it. And we did really well in the race. I think we got like second or third. So fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great story. It's amazing how many times you have that you're like, why am I doing this? And then either it gets better, like in your case, or you're just or it's a really great story to tell at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. There was another race that I did that was just a really great story to tell because everything went wrong and it was so horrible that it was like, okay, that was just a good story. That one, That's a good story to tell at the bar. <laughs> right, 
Right. Like in the moment, you're like, why do I do this? And then later on, you're like, let me tell you the story. Great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so one of my other very favorite questions to ask is, what is your favorite sea creature? <laughs> Ooh, this is a hard one, too. <laughs> I should yeah. have known that this question was coming. <laughs> okay. So I don't know if it's a, I guess it kind of is a sea creature. I really like penguins. Um, penguins are just, totally sea creatures okay cool. i know they're a bird but they do live by the sea yeah i don't know what it is about them i just think they're very cool and majestic and and cute obviously and <laughs> fuzzy um no i think it's and i like that they you know certain species mate for life that kind of gets me in in the heart <laughs> so and I've gotten right. to see a couple of them when I was down. So I sp- real short story. I went and spent some time offshore when I was working for that corporate job for the oil platforms. I went down to the very, very southern tip of South America um, mm. near Tierra del Fuego. There was a barge there that I lived on for 30 days. <laughs> um, oh, wow. So we were very close. It's the southernmost point in the world uh, apart until you get to Antarctica. So literally we were very close to Antarctica. So I got to see some penguins um, swimming around and like coming up and playing around our barge, which was really cool. Oh, that's really fun. Penguins are so cool. I love it. So one thing that I always incorporate at the end of each episode is an ask for the listeners. It's kind of a quick, simple action item. And before we started chatting, you mentioned that you do have something for the listeners. Yeah, I think we talked about a couple of different things between oceans and atmosphere. Um, But I guess my call to action with everyone is um, just kind of focusing on your local community. I think it's really easy to get swept up in the big picture of climate change. And, you know, on the national and global level, it is a big problem. But at the same time, you know, every little community and every person in that community makes a difference. And so at least what I've found um, in some of the communities that I went to, like I went to Puerto Rico after um, Hurricane Maria and just kind of like wanted to help. And their big, the big lesson that I learned there was um, they just relied on each other in their community to help, um, you know, recover after the hurricane, but also prep, prep for any potential disasters that could come again. So getting things in place like collecting rainwater um, instead of relying on like you know, the city to pump you water, um, just little simple things like that, that you can do uh, little projects you can implement in your community and see what the need is. Like maybe your community um, is on the water and there's a ton of trash on the beach or in the ocean. Um, you can just start a little like local beach cleanup with your friends. Um, or if it's your inland, um, you know, and it's, it's something that's, um, yeah, there's an electricity problem and the power keeps going out every time storms come through. Um, You know, finding like little solutions and working with those people in your community, I think, um, is really important. Because if everyone does that, then we can all really come together on a global scale and things will change. It's a great ask and really great points, too. Little small actions multiplied by many people makes a big difference. Yeah. Love it. So if listeners want to connect with you or learn more about you, where's the best place to find you? Yeah, good question. Um, So I am, let's see, probably through Commander's Weather is the best way. Um, On our website, commandersweather.com, you can um, put an inquiry in and send us an email or um, 
yeah, you can connect with me personally. Um, I'm on Facebook, Chelsea Carlson. And um, yeah, those are probably the best two places. Perfect. And I will put a link in the show notes to both of those places, as well as everything we've chatted about for listeners as well. So Chelsea, thank you so much for being on the show. This was such a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it too. I'm looking forward to listening to more of your um, podcast coming up. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment over in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and of course, share with your friends. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please take a moment to subscribe to our channel. It helps other ocean enthusiasts find us. And we'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.